welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I am your host, Monica Hadley, and our guest today is Abbott Collar. That's K-A-H-L-E-R, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name right. Kaler. Actually, it's Kaler. Okay, Abbott Kaler. And Abbott is the author of many well, four New York Times best-selling works of narrative nonfiction, which all sound really fascinating. Um, a search for an ancestor who went missing in 1905, letter to write Sin in the Second City, which tells the true story of two sisters who ran the world's most famous brothel. And then she wrote American Rose, um, based on Gypsy Rose Lee, and Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, which I believe is about women in the Civil War. Female Civil War spies, yes. Female Civil War spies. And I feel like I read that one. And um, and then The Ghosts of Eden Park. And then came The Devil, which that's I don't... That's my forthcoming. That's it's forthcoming. Oh, next. man. Okay. But what we're talking about today is a fiction, her first fiction book, Where You End, which is inspired by a true story of identical twins and amnesia. And it just was released here in January 2024 when we're talking. Now, Abbott's books have been featured as Indie Next Picks, Amazon's Best Books of the Year, and many other awards. She's also been a finalist for the Edgar Award for Best Fat Crime. Um, and many other awards, has written for countless magazines, has appeared on countless TV shows, <laughs> <laughs> and her books have been optioned for television and film. She has a podcast, and she is a native of Philadelphia, lives in New York City and in Greenport, New York, and is here with us today on Writer's Voices. Welcome, Abbott. Thanks so much for having me, Monica. Now, I understand that some of these books were written under a different name. Yes. And I have written all of my nonfiction under Karen Abbott um, and uh, switched over. My, I actually changed my name legally 10 years ago, um, but was never allowed to use my legal name professionally. But once I started switching over to fiction, they thought it would make sense. So here I am. And why did you change your name from Karen Abbott to Abbott Kaler? This is actually a, a very <laughs> creepy story. Uh, <laughs> Every story I tell is, is going to be kind of creepy, but um, so I, and it was about in um, 2013, I got an email from a reader who said that if I Googled myself, I would discover that Google is reporting that I passed away in 2010, <laughs> um, which was really creepy. So sure enough, I Google myself, which I, I, I recommend nobody ever do. I have never um, done it. I have totally avoided. <laughs> I am afraid of what I might see. <laughs> exactly. Refrain, refrain. Um, so, uh, and indeed, my picture was there. Um, my alma mater said died in 2010. Um, it was very creepy. And uh, at that point, I had been thinking about going over into fiction. And at that point, I was about to turn 40. And it was hitting sort of like a midlife crisis. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to change my name. This is bad juju. I'm going to just going to change your name. And I went and I filed all the paperwork in the New York courts, changed my name, and I've been Abbott Kaler ever since. So it's been about 10, 10, 11 years now. So I'm curious about, I mean, Abbott obviously was your last name mm -hmm. and you made it your first name. Um, but where'd Kaler come from? Oh, that's my husband's last name. Oh, well, 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but I really like the way it sounded together. It sort of um, gave me a little like a, a Weimar Republic vibe, you know, like. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I, I liked I liked the um, and my old friends had always called me Abbott. So um, it was kind of a natural switch for me. You know, people just kept calling me what they always had called me. So and it's a gender neutral name, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. that, And I think that helps. You know, yeah. it's sad to say. 2024 um, women still have to, you know, be, be aware of that. Sometimes. I think there are men who won't naturally pick up a book written by that they know is written by a woman where they would Absolutely. a man. So, yeah. Um, and also <laughs> you changed it before uh, Karen became a. I did. Bad yeah. word. <laughs> yeah. It's just I mean, I you could do a whole entire show on that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, if you want to call somebody an entitled, rude person, call them an entitled, rude person. Don't yes. defame a proper name that's shared by millions or thousands uh, of really fine women. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, some of some of the Karens I know are some of the best people I know. So yeah, it's, well, that's it's the unfortunate. Thing. It could have know. been any name. It could have been Susan. It could have been. Lee. I mean, it could have been any name, and and it's just sort of. Um, really unfair that that a proper fine name there was nothing wrong with it had been turned into a bajardin i know how did that happen exactly was there someone named oh, Karen? I, i've written essays about this i think it started with there was a guy on reddit who was divorcing his wife um and started it i guess her name was karen he was divorcing his wife and uh sort of um piled on and and the name and then dane cook picked it up uh the comedian dane cook picked it up and then um I think then it started being transferred to people being annoyed with like service industry. Um, and then it took on sort of a racial, um, sort of a, a racial tone where it always meant a white person. Although now I think it's universal. Like I've, I have, <laughs> I have friends who are like, yeah, I got called a black Karen. Uh-huh. Um, so I think it's, it's now actually, you know, colorblind. The insult is now colorblind. Um, yeah, I'm so, not sure if that's a you know, good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, at one point, you know, it's, it's there's an entire Facebook group of women who have been traumatized um, by by this. I I was interviewed by the New York Post about about uh, the name, um, and they're just basically like want to reclaim. You know, they just want people to stop using their name as a pejorative. Just say rude, entitled person. Yeah, you, you yeah. Know, just say what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. So where you end first fiction book, what made you decide to make the move into fiction? You've been very successful with your nonfiction. And oh well, uh, you know, when I was writing nonfiction, um, I always had been fascinated by fiction. When I was a kid, I wrote fiction. Uh, when I was 10 or 11, I began sending Stories to Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine and Alfred Hitchcock, really sort of creepy stories. Um, shockingly, none of them, <clears throat> excuse me, were ever published. <laughs> and then I fell into journalism. I became a journalist in Philadelphia. And I always, you know, in, and when I transferred into book writing, I always kept a folder of interesting ideas I would come across in history, interesting characters, interesting events. And I would do a little bit more digging and discover, unfortunately, there was not the primary source material um, to write a full book about it. But they were interesting. And I thought, well, maybe they'll make good novels. You know, I could flesh these people out and, and give them a, a life through fiction if I can't really do it in nonfiction. So I had a growing folder of these kind of fascinating ideas. 
Um, and then in 2019, I, I watched a really incredible documentary called Tell Me Who I Am. Um, and it tells the true story of two British identical twins, Marcus and Alex Lewis. Um, and when Alex was 18, he suffered a very bad motorcycle accident and had a traumatic brain injury. And when he awakened from his coma, the only knowledge he had was his brother's face and name. He didn't remember any of their past, any of their history, any of their memories, none of their friends, other family members. It was all gone except for Marcus's face and name. And so in this tragedy, Marcus saw an opportunity. He was going to reinvent their history, concoct new memories out of whole cloth, and tell them, you know, this is what our life really was like, um, which worked for a while until Alex began to suspect that maybe his brother was lying all along. Wow. Okay. So now in this book, it's two girls and they're in New York, I think. No, no, they're in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. Okay. So they're in Philadelphia. <laughs> and um, so I'm assuming that the, the made up life is very, very different than what these real life twins made up life was. Yes. Yeah. Those twins were in, in, in England. Um, and also that what happened too is I, I, my mom is an identical twin. Um, oh. and she's actually a mirror twin and her name is Catherine and the, her twin is Judith. And so that's where I got the names in the book. They're actually named after my mom and our identical twin. And I began thinking about, you know, I knew this close, very unique twin relationship. Um, for my entire life. And I began thinking about what my mom and my aunt would have done in this situation. How would they have reacted if one of them had suffered a traumatic brain injury? And would they have lied to the other? Would that be seen as a gift or a betrayal? You know, how far would they have gone to uh, recreate this fantasy and, and sort of try to manipulate the past? Um, and so I really use that their bond, too, as a springboard. There's a, a, a twin language in the book that's actually based on the language they spoke as young kids. So oh. it's drawn from my mom and her twin. And are they both able to read the book? Uh, my mom's twin, sadly, had passed away, oh. um, like actually 25 years ago. It's been a while. Wow. And uh, but my mom, my mom is eagerly awaiting her copy. So <laughs> has she read it yet? No. Oh, my. Oh, you're making her wait until it actually <laughs> she has the I, final finished product in hand <laughs> I never like I never want people to read you know unless you're industry people if you're my friends and family you've got to wait for the finished thing so <laughs> yeah it's interesting because um, we were talking about um before we started here about the galley versus the finished thing and you said there were some changes between the two yeah yeah, yeah there was one change in particular uh I won't spoil it but I I you know, I, I thought a lot of, uh, you know, these characters became very real to me because I feel like I based them on people that I knew. And once in a while, I would catch myself in the narrative and say, no, you know, this Jude would not do that. She would not have made this choice. And so later in the latest drafts, as late as possible, I, they, <laughs> like, were, they were basically pulling it from my my hands. Um, I was at, at, you know, able to make those final changes that I think um, made the characters remain true to who I imagined them to be. So is there anything in Jude and Kat's history in Where You End that is that was part of your mom's history? Well, there's a lot of poker in the book. Um, <laughs> and my mom and her twin, um, their favorite pastime was to go down to Atlantic City 
and play the poker slots and gamble. And they would that was basically what they did in every every opportunity they got. So um, I, I put, took their love of gambling and, and really put it in the book. Too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So talked about mirror twins. Now, I had never really heard of this until a few months ago on Writer's Voices. We interviewed the author of How to Be Multiple. Oh, interesting. Which is a book about um, twins and and sort of how, um, why we're so attracted to stories about twins, why they're so prevalent in literature, and um, some of the ways that that we sort of project um, things onto twins. Yeah. And uh, and so she she talked about mirror twins. Yeah. In, in that book. So do you want to explain what that means? Yes. And I my mom and her twin are actually mirror twins. So um, it is a rare phenomenon that occurs with identical twins when the embryo splits a little bit later than usual. Um, so the um, result of that late splitting is that, you know, they will have opposite features. You know, my mom was right handed. My aunt was left handed. My mom's hair naturally parted on one side. My aunt's hair parted on the other side. Um, and if they looked at each other, the effect was looking into a mirror because of those opposite um, parallels. Um, and, uh, I, I think that's just another deeper level, you know, identical twins, I think are already, already the closest relationship you can possibly have with somebody. Um, and that's even, um, more apparent because you, you really see that we were the same exact person and, you know, and we, and I think there's a line in the book where it says, um, they clung to each other, you know, as long as nature would allow parting almost reluctantly in the womb. Um, and that's really the way I felt about about the twins in the book. And, of course, my mom and her sister. It must have been really hard for your mom to lose her sister so young. Yeah, it was it was it's still devastating. She she can't talk about her. Oh, wow. So do you think it might be hard for her to read this? Um, I'm she knows that the, the twins are named after her and her sister. And I think she appreciated that. Um. I think she'll be able to read it because, you know, much 90 percent of the book really had nothing to do. With so, um, I'm glad about that, because there's some, yeah. there's some pretty dark areas in here. So, yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm hoping she'll let herself be entertained by the fictional aspects and not, you know, not the, the, the really um tragic stuff uh be dredged up too much so yeah tragic there's a lot of kind of um darkness in this story and it sounds like a lot of your non-fiction books also kind of focus on yeah i I think a good (laughs) underbelly give me a give me a cd underbelly and i will crawl beneath and look around um i love subversive characters i love examining people's dark impulses. Um, I love when people triumph over over darkness, which I think happens in this book. It's, there's a definitely redemption arc that I think. Um, and, and I really just um, think that's also part of the twin trope. You know, people are fascinated by twins because there's a darkness um, in literature pertaining to twins. You know, it was when Freud wrote about them, I think his an essay about the uncanny you know, the twins represented a dark shadow self. Um, you know, there was a, a self that was just separate from you, maybe, you know, leading you to doom or leading you to death. 
And um, it was something that was terrifying to people, um, especially in that Gothic literature. Um, and that tradition obviously is still strong today. And yeah, um, yeah. I think that, that twins, twins sort of necessitate a dark story. You can't, <laughs> you can't write a bright and happy story with twins. Uh, well, Sweet Valley High, they had those. Oh, <laughs> Jessica Wakefield was a sociopath. Okay. <laughs> You go back and reread. There's actually websites devoted to how Jessica Wakefield was associated. Okay, well, I never read them. They were my daughter's, you know, uh, they were popular during my daughter's age. So maybe I should have read them and maybe I wouldn't yeah. have wanted her reading them. You know what? It's nothing a kid would pick up on. But uh. it's, you know, she's going around like making up false rape ac accusations and stuff like that. Oh, my so, gosh. Oh, my yeah, gosh. It's wow. Jessica Wakefield was a sociopath, so I maintain <laughs> Well, I think, I think, you know, that the book I was just telling about how to be multiple, I think Helena de Brace was the author. One of the chapters is all about what you're just talking about. So it's very, yeah. it's very interesting. Um, now in, in this book, there's also a, what would you call a, um, there's a, there's a word for it that I'm missing, but the, a movement, like there were a lot of movements uh, imp human improvement kind of things. Exactly. Um, yeah. Scientology, EST. What were some of the others? And is it's basically the inspiration for this? Which one was? E EST. EST. I wondered. Yeah. I wondered about that. Yeah. yeah. And and what? Now, whatever happened to the EST movement? Do you know? Okay. He's, um, well, he rebranded himself. It was Werner Earnhardt was his name. Um, ironically, he's from my hometown, which I thought could have weird. Whoa. Uh, and so he, you know, he started off ESC in the 70s when this was, you know, it was ripe for these kind of movements. Um, and uh, he, you know, some of the celebrities that I name drop in the book as having belonged to this movement were actually part of VST. Um, so I, I took that little bit from real life. And he rebranded EST as a sort of kinder, gentler uh, approach called the Forum. Later yes, on. and I had a lot of friends who were into the Forum yeah. back in like the '90s, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it was and, a and big deal in my little town. <laughs> yeah, and I know people who swear by it and said it changed their life and it made them productive and more focused and happier. And I mean, more power to you, I guess. Yeah. But it was, um, and he's he's still around. He's still around. Wow. So no, actually, I think he's dead, but his thing is still okay. Around. <laughs> so for for people who maybe weren't alive in the seventies and eighties, um, can you kind of tell us what EST was all about? Yeah. So it was it stood for Earn Her Training Seminars, his last name, um, and it was the idea. It was kind of like a blend of like Zen Buddhism and Dale Carnegie, you know, this sort of mystical. Uh, asking, um, reframe your experience um, along with, hey, here's how to be really successful in business and get people to like you. Um, so, you know, it was born born out of the like hippie movement, but I think it was moving into a slightly bit like it was a, a, a corporate tinge to it um, where, you know, these were professional people. Um, these were people who aspired to white collar professions and jobs and, and had families and money. They weren't off, you know, taking drugs and, and sort of starting race wars and doing the Charles Manson crazy. <laughs> True. True. Yes. Were there some scandals? In yeah. 
Yeah. I think there were a few uh, lawsuits um, where people, you know, charged him with uh, cruelty, um, emotional distress, um, that kind of that kind of thing. Um, and, I, you know, I'm sure he had to pay out some settlements and, and there was a little bit of controversy about it. But he's, he always seemed to land on his feet, at least in that era. Well, it's interesting because it reminds me a lot of Scientology, too, because. There have definitely been some major accusations around it, oh, and yet it, people still swear by it. Yeah. Or, you know, there are certainly a lot of people who still participate and hopefully willingly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think probably he, you know, he aspired to be Scientology. Yeah, um, yeah. He didn't, quite, he didn't quite reach that level, but um, that was probably his, his end goal. It, it Doesn't it seem sometimes like... I mean, people might start out with the best of intentions of helping people, but once they start getting a certain amount of power, it can go wrong so easily. Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely true. And, um, you know, I think you see that in the book, too, even just with the with the children's mother, um, not to Chicat and Jude's mother, not to, you know, do too much spoilers about her, but she sort of gets involved and, and goes on a little bit of a power trip, I think, in her own in her own way. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and also it's, you know, not not protecting her children. And that seems to happen in these kind of situations, too, where they women for some reason, they'll, they'll just look the other way and not and pretend not to know what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I really wanted to, um, you know, my goal with all that, too, was to sort of go back and forth and show how Kat and Jude, you know, with the different timelines, um, how they were able to sort of, you know, bring themselves up out of all of that. And uh, and you, you see very clearly why Jude starts concocting lies to tell her sister. And, you know, I, I really you know, it was very important to me to for Jude to very carefully consider what lies she was going to tell. You know, I actually at one point thought about um, Jude even just giving Kat a new personality. And, you know, she would have said, <laughs> no, no, Kat, you don't like to party. You you really li- just like to sit in your room and read and you didn't really like like go out and you were introverted. But that didn't seem like it would be true to me. You know, I think she wanted her sister to back exactly as she was, but the, maybe the best and loveliest version of her sister with, with a, a, you know, a, a past that she wished that they had had. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, even if you weren't trying to hide some past tragedy, I could see where the temptation might be to focus on the best aspects of somebody and, and, try and help them be the best version of who they were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. So um, now you mentioned, Abbott, that you've got a nonfiction book coming out too. So are you going to continue writing both fiction and nonfiction? You know, I'd love to. I have to confess, nonfiction is getting harder and harder. Um, <laughs> it's it's sort of like every time I find a good story, either one, it doesn't have the the primary source material I need to write it as nonfiction, or two, somebody's already done it. Somebody's mm. already done it. It seems like every every idea I think of now, somebody has already done it. Um, but I do hope I, I'm very excited about the book that's coming out uh, next year. Um, it's uh, a true story of a group of people, Germans, um, who flee Germany in the years leading up to World War II, all the chaos. It's 
ensuing over there. Um, and they, they try to build a utopia um, on the remote Galapagos Island of Floriana. And <laughs> it turns into kind of an adult Lord of the Flies. Things oh, go no. Terribly, things go terribly awry, I guess, as they often do in utopias. Um, and it was really a lot of fun to research that. Some really uh, possibly the craziest characters I've ever come across. And that's saying quite a bit. Uh, considering my my nonfiction uh, repertoire, no. but, you know, <laughs> yeah, really, <laughs> yeah. Why why are you so drawn to these historical characters? What is it about history that um, draws your attention? Because when yeah. you when you go to write a book, you're going to spend a lot of time with this, yeah, in a time period and with a group of characters. Exactly. And especially true for nonfiction, because, you know, when you're committing to a nonfiction book, if you do have a lot of research to do, it's at least like a, a very minimum three year experience, um, sometimes four. Um, I think of my Civil War book, I spent four and a half, maybe. And uh, and you really have to enjoy these people, you know, you or if not enjoy them. You have to find them at least that you can get up out of bed and sit with them every day, because, I mean, writer's life is is very lonely. Often the only people I'll talk to all day are the dead people um, in, my, <laughs> in my books. Uh, and you really just have to to sort of um, choose very carefully. And, uh, you know, I as I said, I was, I'm very drawn to the subversive characters and, and they always keep me fascinated enough for the time period I need to, to get the book done. Um, but it was a quite a weird leap going from nonfiction to fiction. I have to say it's a very different process. How did you learn to write fiction? Um, oh, God. You know, I, I always tried. I always wrote fiction. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you my first story just because it's so <laughs> creepy. When I, when I talked about how I mentioned uh, or I tried to submit to Alfred Hitchcock and Ellery Queen, I think I was about 10 or 11 when I first started doing that. And I vividly remember a story called Tea with Mr. Roper. And it was the story of this widow who, you know, she was very lonely. Her husband had died. Um, she every day she looked forward to tea with her neighbor, Mr. Roper, and she would talk about the past and talk about the things she wanted to do and this and that. And poor Mr. Roper couldn't get a word in edgewise. Um, and at the end of the story, it's revealed that Mr. Roper is actually a decaying corpse in her pantry. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> That she trotted out every day uh, to have tea with. Um, eventually, he started not to uh, uh, smell very nice, and <laughs> and it was discovered. Um, so again, shockingly, it was not published. Um, I don't know why my mother didn't immediately put me into therapy. Um, <laughs> but I, that was that was my fiction. So I always wrote fiction, and I I always really wanted to. And when I when I wrote nonfiction, whenever I do write nonfiction, I really try to make it read like fiction. Um, you know, I stay within the confines of fact, but use narrative techniques that still allow you to do suspense and uh, cliffhangers, and you know, building up a sense of dread and kind of uh, those tools that you use in fiction. Um, you just have to you know keep them in a box of fact. So what is it that you said? made it so different writing a novel? Yeah, so with nonfiction, you know, it's impossible to write bad dialogue. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the dead people, you know, the the dialogue is all there in the historical record, um, just waiting for you to record it. Uh, you can't really make any wrong narrative turns, you know, that the history has recorded the event, um, and you're just, you really can't make up any any new twists or anything like that. 
Um, but the challenge, you know, dead people are very stubborn. They don't always do what you wanted them to do. Um, and in fiction, you know, by contrast, it's very liberating. Um, it's thrilling uh, to have all this freedom, but it also opens you up to a lot of pitfalls. Um, you know, you, you can write bad dialogue and you can make wrong turns in the narrative. Uh, and so it was sort of just, uh, and I'm, I'm a very, very thorough outliner in my nonfiction. Um, my, my outlines are often longer than the books themselves. Uh, you know, 110,000 word outline for a 95,000 word book or something like that. <laughs> and, and in fiction, I tried to outline, but you know, the characters started talking back in ways. Jude and Kat started talking back to me in ways that, you know, my nonfiction characters don't talk back to me. <laughs> So, so that was just kind of an adjustment to really learn to listen to these, these trust these characters that I created, um, even though they were based in fact, you know, trust, trust them to sort of tell me what they were going to do and trust that it was the right thing for the book. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Abbott Kaler, author of Where You End, which is a very gripping suspense novel. So when you, um, you say you outline like so thoroughly. Does that mean when you're writing like for this fiction novel that you knew exactly where the story was going before you started? You know, I had ideas of where I wanted it to go. Um, I had elements I knew I wanted to include, but there were so many times where I just threw the outline out and said, no, you know, this is, you know, Kat is saying this is wrong. Jude is saying this is wrong. And I, I definitely did have to adapt and, and learn how to be flexible um, in ways that I never had to do with nonfiction. And I knew how I wanted it to end, but I wanted the ending to be am ambiguous in a way. And, and to be honest, I don't even know how it ends, really. <laughs> like, I know it happens, but there's a little bit of ambiguity. And I, I haven't come down on either side of that ambiguity to really say this is what happened. OK, OK. I, I so like you... to leave that up to interpretation for the reader, too, because I, you know, th this book is a book about secrets. Um, and Jude has kept secrets from Kat this entire time. And I wanted Kat to be able to ha keep a secret, too. Now, in the book, you're writing from both people's perspective, Kat and Jude, and you're also um, writing in two different timelines before the accident and or you know during their childhood and then after the accident. Yeah, so um, before now. Yeah, and then a little bit. So it start the before part starts like ten years earlier, something like that. Um, yes, right. Yeah, and then and then moves forward to write before the accident. So I'm curious about how you decided how much of each to put in, like how much of Jude, how much of Cat, how much of the past, how much of the current. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and I, I, you know, had initially thought about just using flashbacks, but I really when you have the dramatic twists that that can happen in this book, um, you really need to lay the groundwork for that. And you really need to lay the groundwork for the girl's relationship, because, it, you know, without their relationship being real, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, and so I thought I really had to go into the past and what they had been through together um, to explore the present. And, you know, of course, the past at one point ends, they, the, the two timelines converge and then it's all full speed ahead with the present timeline. Right. And of course, you couldn't do flashbacks for Kat. 
No, exactly. <laughs> it, it all would have been, and, and, you know, they would have been in Jude's point of view, and, and they are sort of flashbacks. And I yeah. did want Jude's personality to come through, too, um, because she is different from Kat. They're, they are mirror identical twins, but they definitely have their own personalities. And I, it was very important to me that their voices sounded different, that their personalities were different. They were two distinct people who just happened to share this very uncommon bond. Well, why don't you read a little bit from the beginning of Where You End? I'll happily do that. Okay, so this is from the prologue. Um, I'll read the header so I can orient you in time and place. Cat, now, the night of the accident, March 1983. It was just like me to go ahead and die, leaving her behind. That's what I'd hear her say if I could hear her at all. Foolish, careless, typical, expected even. Another instance in which she was forced to clean up my mess, tend to my mistakes. Her guillotine voice would curse me in the sweetest tones. She would softly rake her bloody fingernails against my lifeless arm. She would say all the right things to lure me back and keep all the wrong things to herself. On that night, we left the old neighborhood just as the rain began to fall. I ran first. I've always gone first, leading her back the way we came, through a colony of dusty relics, across a lush runway of grass, down a street where the homes are crowded with ghosts. I was not right. There was a pulsing inside my head, the tempo and weight of a thousand percussive drums, but I convinced myself otherwise, let my mind talk me into believing my own lies. As we set off, me behind the wheel and my twin sister by my side, the rain stopped and I felt a shivery relief. The clouds cleared and the full moon shot its light through the craggy branches, illuminating the road ahead. I saw the deer's body right before I swerved hard right, its long neck snapped unnaturally back. Then came a tree and a sheet of glass and the feeling that my head had launched away from my body, soaring into the sky too far for me to retrieve it. I had time to form one last thought before my mind emptied itself of all things. She will know how to fix me. Jude, now, hours after the accident, March 1983. Jude sits in the hospital waiting room, folding and unfolding her hands, her fingernails still stained with her sister's blood. Kat has been wheeled off to some distant room, but Jude can see her perfectly, a tangle of wires on her chest and a tube stabbing her throat, and the nurses fluttering about like a flock of poisoned birds. A drop of sweat falls on the cat's cheek. Machines blink and hiss. Instruments maneuver and gleam. Her long, taut body is hidden beneath a sheet. She has lost all sense of herself. The light begins to dim behind her closed eyes, and Jude watches it happen, an excruciating descent, a darkening by degrees. Cat is leaving her. Against Jude's will, her body holds itself absolutely still, the only moving part is a ticker in her mind tallying Kat's absence. One second, two, ten. Jude's brain pulses and her heart grows quiet, as though the two organs are trading places, confusing their functions. Thirty seconds, thirty-five. Her lips collapse into a severe blue slash, trapping her breath behind them. Eighty-nine, ninety. Her ears register a strident voice, telling her to come back and stay with him, stay with him, stay with him, that's it. Steady, steady, good. Miss, the doctor says, grasping Jude's arm. Are you okay? Those interminable 90 seconds rewind. Her heart frees itself. Her mind resumes being a mind and her heart a heart, racing and pounding as minds and hearts do. Her lips part and allow greedy gulps of breath. The waiting room shakes itself out and returns to its proper form. Four dingy beige walls, a fake plant with dusty leaves, 
a tidy line of stackable fabric chairs, the sounds of coughing and weeping and the nightly news predicting nuclear war. The doctor squeezes Jude's arm again and confirms what she already knows. Cat had been gone, but now she is halfway back, alive but in a coma. He whispers a series of chilling words, traumatic brain injury, intracranial pressure, damaged accents. She will live, but she might never be the same. Jude should expect the worst. She should prepare. All right. But as we know, she does survive. Yes. He survives but with, with, with the only, only knowing Jude's, yeah, only knowing Jude's piece of name. How yeah. common is amnesia? Oh, that's a good question. I, you know, I, when, when I watched the documentary, Tell Me Who I Am, I um, tried to find out any information I could about what the doctor said, exactly what this, you know, diagnosis was, what had happened. And there was never any really hardcore information about what had gone on in Alex Marx's brain, um, or sorry, Alex Lewis, Lewis's brain. Um, and, you know, I, I did some more digging and it seems like some people were speculating that, you know, there were different parts of the brain affected. Um, declarative memories are formed in several different places. Um, there was um, a suggestion that maybe he had repressed some of these memories before the accident. Um, which I thought was an interesting theory um, that, that the accident just sort of further buried already repressed memories. So it's really, you know, the brain is obviously a very mysterious uh, organ <laughs> and we don't quite know all of the mysteries that that sort of make it what it is. And it's, you know, the brain is not a, uh, a static thing. It's changing. It moves. It's it grows. It um, adapts. Um, and, you know, I, it's it's uh, I think all of those things were, you know, sort of to be considered when thinking about Alex's accident. Yeah. And I mean, so many of us face some forms of amnesia as we age. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely true. Yeah. 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 And it's it's like scary to think about how much I've already forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. So you need you need a twin to come along and fill in, <laughs> fill in the blanks for you and tell you pretty tell you pretty lies. I can yeah, really. Or I could have journaled all along and then I could go back and read it. <laughs> I know it's it's uh, it's it's true. It's very true. But um, I you know it's it's sort of I had I had a lot of fun with you know you know some people were like oh you she need cat needs to start re recalling things she the memory needs to come back to her and I and I'm just like no you know that's not that's not how this works. Yeah. Um, memories were gone and I'm not going to sort of do a, a miraculous recovery where she remembers everything. Um, I thought that would sort of, that's absolutely not what happened to, you know, Alex Lewis and that I didn't want that to happen to Jude. Yeah. And it wouldn't have been as good a story. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Like, oh. Instead, I she, realize you're lying. Yeah. Yeah. She basically becomes her own detective to, to yes. figure out what her what her past life really was. That's exactly it. And I, I wanted to show her journey of sort of, um, you know, once she starts to question and, and how terrifying that must have been for her. You know, here is the only person she knows and the only person she thinks she can fully trust and starting to suspect that, you know, maybe your sister is lying to you. Um, and and the, the idea of even getting up the courage to question that and go into your own detective search and um, you know, really takes a lot of a lot. It's a lot to ask of Kat. And I think she rises to the occasion pretty well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, your next book that you're going to be working on, 
fiction or nonfiction? Uh, well, the Then Came the Devil comes out next year, so that's so you're I'm finished. It. Working I'm on that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm waiting for my edits, and um, uh, apparently Ron Howard is also doing a movie on the same topic. So we're hoping the book comes out um, around the same time and sort of you know feed off each other. I can feed off him. <laughs> <laughs> Ron Howard doesn't need to feed off my book. I will feed off Ron Howard's film. <laughs> um, and then I'm thinking about my next novel. Uh, you know, I have a couple ideas. Um, I, I I don't ever want to fully uh, reject the idea of writing about history with, you know, with fiction. I think there's plenty of historical periods that that aren't, you know, haven't been that, that explored with with um, with novels. Uh, and I, I've got a few ideas on that front. So also, historical um, fiction, which kind of combines both. Both of, yeah. I mean, in a sense, where you end is kind of historical fiction because yeah. it's set in the it's past. But it. it's, I mean, it's, it's the seventies and history. I mean, eighties are history now. It's kind of scary. But, I know. Um, <laughs> it's definitely a period of peace. <laughs> yeah, but the focus yeah. isn't really on the time or what was going on in the world at that right, time. Right. It's really more on the on the characters. And that's true. Although I did meticulous research into the slang and um, especially in the 70s. I remember 80s slang. I was a kid. Um, <laughs> well, you could have asked me about 70s slang. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know any. I didn't know any 70s slang because I was I was a really little kid. Um, and uh, it was important for me for the kids to be one step ahead of the adults about what was cool language, what had fallen out of favor. Um, so I had a lot of fun also going back to the newspapers and reading what people were saying at any given time. And some of those words I had never some of the phrasing and words I'd never heard of at all. Can you give me an example? Can, do you remember? Yeah, like um, <laughs> one was tough, uh, tough, meaning good. Oh, now that I'm not fam- that, um, I was not familiar with that usage. Maybe that was a very Philadelphia thing. <laughs> yeah, it could have been. Oh, well, I, I did like an action search. And then there was one that was refrigerator cool. It was cooler than cool. It was refrigerator cool. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm not familiar with that one either. I guess I would have failed you. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, well, what would you have suggested? Oh, let's see. So in the 70s. Um, well, this would have been the mid 70s. It's been real. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one that I can't say on public on radio. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd have to bleep myself. Um, let's see, what else? I'll have to think about that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the '80s were easy. You know, the gag me with the spoon. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just definitely, and and sort of. Um, oh, there are even colloquial ones. I I didn't put them in there because I I think Philly was the only ones that would say it, but um. God, uh, gagging with a spoon and oh, righteous and oh, righteous, yeah, yeah, and yeah. bitching. Oh my God, bitching. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those, those, I could, yeah, those would have been eighties, probably even into the nineties, but maybe I don't know. Time, time all sort of runs together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> after yeah, a definitely. certain point, doesn't it? Yeah. So, what other time periods would you like to write about? Oh, you know, I'm thinking a lot about the. Well, one one idea is set in the 90s, so even a little bit more modern than where you end. Um, and uh, which also, though, I think the 90s were an interesting period. Uh, the 80s were so bizarre and the 90s, um, I think, sort of like, you know, didn't get. Although there is a great nostalgia for the 90s right now, I have to say, 
there's more fondness for the 90s now than I think we actually felt <laughs> in the 90s. Um, and then I'm also really obsessed with the 50s, too. Um, mm. There's there's some periods of the 50s that I that we're living through um, right now that it, it just seems like, you know, as history always does, it's repeating itself in, in some ways. Um, yeah. And I am thinking of thinking a little bit about that. And, and then, you know, I of course, my favorite time period in, in the world is the Gilded Age. Oh, um, really? OK. Yeah. OK. So I how many of your books were set in that time period? Absolutely none. Oh. Um, <laughs> actually, it's I sh the Sin in the Second City, my first book about two sisters who ran the most famous brothel. Um, what that was from 1900 to 1911. So it was really uh, the end of the Gilded Age, the beginning of the Progressive Era. But there were still, of course, holdovers from from the you know the gay 90s as they called it. Um, right, right. <laughs> I think those 90s were more interesting than the nine, 1990s. But, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So, and, but, but it's just the this sort of you know what it, you know what's interesting about the past to me is is we can't be shocked anymore. There is literally nothing anybody can do on this planet that would shock me. <laughs> nothing, nothing. We have seen it all. I think we. I, I mean, there's nothing that would be shocking. And back then, people really could be shocked, and they were shocked. Um, headlines were shocking. I mean, literally everything was shocking. Uh, and I, I don't think like, you know, you have Lady Gaga going out and this call back to, you know, the aughts, I guess, Lady Gaga going out and wearing a dress made of meat. You know, I mean, and it's not even shocking. It, you know, I, I, I just feel like we can't be shocked anymore. And, and I love that about history. It was a time when people could still be shocked. Well, that's true. But it's also part of the reason they could be shocked is because behavior was so much more oh, prescribed. Of and of course. Yeah. yeah so we have so much more freedom now. Yes, that's absolutely true. And of course, all of that is, is really, really wonderful and good things. But um, yeah. And, and of course, there's a lot of people pushing back on that right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, again, history repeating itself. But no, I, you know, it's 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 absolutely true that, you know, people aren't a shock now because we do have the freedom to do pretty much anything without um, without, you know, being ostracized, um, at least to some degree. I know. And that's that's actually quite a cool thing in a way. Yeah. In a lot of ways. A lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah. But even just, yeah, just, um, you know, even just literature could be shocking back then. You know? Oh, of course. Well, I mean, Oscar, Wilde, Oscar Wilde was shocking. Um, yeah. You know, and again, that's because, you know, men weren't supposed to like men. So, yeah. Yeah. And now we're back to burning books again. Oh, exactly. See, history. It's like we don't we don't learn from it unless we unless we understand it and know it, which sometimes I think the, the type of books you write are one of the best ways for people to learn history because they're entertained at the same time. Yeah, that's what I hope. You know, the history is full of people who had the same goals, the same fears that we do. You know, they. They weren't that much different than us as, as fundamental, you know, fundamental human beings. Everybody wanted success. Everybody wanted a happy family. Everybody wanted mo enough money to pay the bills. You know, it's really not, not not that different when you get down to the granular nitty gritty of, of who people were. Yeah. And there was there's always a push towards more freedom and more self-expression. And particularly for women, there's periods throughout history where women were able to to like break free of the bonds that were there for so much of our history 
And, but then there's always somebody trying to pull them back and, and it's, you know, two steps forward, one step back, sometimes two steps back. And I'm thinking about like women in the twenties and some of the things they were doing and journalists, um, uh, female journalists in, in the, in that time period and some of the amazing things they did. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I actually run a a group of of, um, four female journalists in in New York City, along with two other writers. We sort of have a a quarterly gathering where people can talk about their books and get advice and and support. Um, And we call it Sob Sisters. And we call it Sob Sisters because that was a derogatory name for female journalists. Um, back in the, those early days of when women started, you know, daring to become newspaper reporters. Uh, and we wanted to sort of, you know, a little nod to, to those pioneering women, um, who, who do something that we take for granted today. And then there was this, like, during the, after World War II, when the soldiers came home and women kind of got pushed back into the home. And that period of time was very brief when yeah. when all the women were at home and because before that most women worked outside the home or they brought work into the home kids were often raised by the older children there wasn't this nuclear family right and there were often uh, you know other generations around to help and the whole nuclear family dad goes out to work mom's at home the two kids in the suburbs was so brief and yet yeah. it keeps being held up as this ideal time which it was not for most of the people involved it was very stifling and and there were a lot of miserable people absolutely and of course gave way to the 60s where everybody was rebelling against that yeah Um, yeah when they did not want to grow up and sort of have that that very you know that that very prescribed role that their mothers had had i'm Uh so grateful to have been born came of age during a time when I had more opportunities and really was able to create the life that I wanted. Yeah, likewise. (laughs) (laughs) So when you first started writing books, was it difficult for you to um, get published? Wow, that's, um, I'm thinking back, you know, I, (laughs) let me, let me time travel back to, uh, let's see, 2000, early 2000s. Um, I wrote I wrote a book. Um, I wrote it as fiction. It was actually a true story. I fictionalized it. Um, I'll tell you, it's a, it was a fascinating story. It was um, there's a publisher called Paladin Press. Um, they were in Colorado and they they published sort of um, very underground style books, you know, bomb making, how to live off the grid. I think Timothy McVeigh bought a, a, a book about bomb making before he blew up the federal building. Um and they, in 1983, they published a book called Hitman, a technical manual for independent contractors. And about 10 years later, a, um, a man hired a, a gunman, an actual hired murderer, to kill his disabled son and his wife and the nurse. I think that was a, the three people who got killed. Uh, and the victim's family sued Paladin Press, claiming they aided and abetted um, this murder by publishing a how-to manual on how to commit murder. Um, and it became a big uh, First Amendment uh, rally. Uh, the New York Times, the ACLU um, jumped in and said, you can't hold a publisher responsible for the behavior of a madman or, you know, this, this <laughs> is a killer. Um, and lost in all of this, you know, the, the byline on Hitman was Rex Farrell, uh, which means Kimball Beast in Latin. And I and I was like, who is Rex Farrell? Who is this person? 
So it turns out Rex Farrell is a divorced mother of two living in a trailer park in Florida who was writing these <laughs> books, like, just because she was trying to, you know, break into fiction. Uh, and they wouldn't take it as a novel. And so she made it a how-to manual. And this is, this, clearly the guy got caught because her advice wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but it was a whole thing. And I, I, I met her, became friends with her. Um, you know, she's still fine today. And uh, and so that was my first foray. I and I couldn't sell it as a novel. So I actually went back and with with the Rex Farrell's assistance and permission, redid it as nonfiction. And that came very close. Um, I almost sold that, uh, but it didn't sell. And then I you know, my grandmother told me the story about her mother and her mother's sister emigrating from Sylvania in 1905. And the sister went to Chicago and was never heard from again. Um, and I started looking into Chicago in 1905, found out about the Everly sisters who ran this, you know, the big brothel in Chicago and world famous and forgot all about my missing ancestor. I <laughs> uh, was much more interested in these two in these two sisters. So that's really how I I started. And I, I got I was very lucky to get a get an offer for that book. Um, I only got one offer. It was got in by the skin of my teeth. It was for pretty much no money at all. Um, but you get your foot in the door. And I think people out there, if there are any aspiring writers, uh, a lot of luck plays into this. So don't think you don't have talent. You have the drive. You have, you know, the talent. You keep working on your craft. A lot of it's luck. You know, you have to hit the right editor on the right day, the right agent on the right day, the right publishing team on the right day, the right marketing group on the right day. And, and it all comes into play. So. so did you have an agent with that book? I did. You yes, did. I okay. actually was on my third agent by the time. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So you just kept going. Yeah, you, you really have to in this business. It's not an easy business. And I feel very, very fortunate to have had the, you know, whatever success I've had. And um, it's not an easy business. And, um, you know, you, you only write because you don't write expecting to make money. You know, don't go into publishing thinking you're going to make money. Go into publishing because you don't know what else to do with yourself but write. Um, and were you working as a journalist still at that time? So you had like a I, day job or? I, I did in the beginning when I was trying to write from Philadelphia to Atlanta and the cost of living was so much lower that I, you know, I, I did dabble into freelance, but I didn't have to get a, um, a staff job anywhere, luckily, and could really try to focus on getting a full length book out there. That was a real leap of faith, wasn't it? It was, it was. And, you know, I, this is the thing, you know, I would have kept writing even if I never got published. You know, I write because I like writing. I, I don't even like publishing. The business of publishing <laughs> is tough, but the, but the act of writing is 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 where uh, it's my favorite thing to do. Um, so it's it's actually that's a lie. I hate writing. I love having written. <laughs> uh, <laughs> writing I think... also is very difficult. <laughs> you you know, if you're compelled to do it, you'll do it whether or not anybody's going to read it, whether a million people are reading it or whether, you know, you and your mom are reading it, you're going to still do it. That's a very true point. And I think some, I think there are a lot of authors who don't, who are doing it because they want to have written, but they don't actually Right. They're doing it for the I, the hope of fame and fortune. And they're probably a lot less likely to be successful. Yeah. It, it's like, you know, yeah. you might get hit by lightning. It's yeah. the same. Yeah. It's the same. Exact, <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, all like every single star and then some has to align mm -hmm. to hit it really big. And I have friends who have, 
you know, my one friend is the author of Water for Elephants, which is now heading to Broadway. It was, you know, one of the biggest novels of the early aughts, mid aughts. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and I, I will tell you, it was uh, shocking for her. It changed her life and not always for the better. So, well, I want to thank you, Abbott Kaler, for being with us today. I enjoyed reading Where You End. It was a great read. I hope it, I think it would make a great movie someday. Oh, from your mouth. <laughs> Once again, it's all, you know, you've got to have the luck, but thank you. And we always end with a quote, and this one is particularly apropos, but I'm not going to tell you why you'll have to read the book. Man is not what he thinks he is. He is what he hides. And that's yeah. from Andre Mauro. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's really excellent and a perfect way to, to conclude. And it's very fitting for the book. So thank you for that. And see you all next week on Writer's Voices.